Thank you, thank you, Lindsay. We're awfully excited to have you back. Thanks for being here. Good morning, yet again. Oh, man. I thought I had you warmed up. Let's try this again. Good morning. Good morning. There you are. Very good. I got to you got to be awake for this. Something wonderful is happening here this morning. I got this email. Just, hey, by the way, I'm Greg Lavoie and I'm going to be in the neighborhood. Would you like to have me come in? Well, somebody else might have gone, Greg who? But I happen to know who Greg Lavoie is because he wrote a book I read that was transformational for me. The book is called Callings, Findings and Following, following Finding and Following an Authentic Life. So Greg with two G's is a giveaway too. <laughs> So I was very excited. It was uh, just perfect that he was available to speak to us during this year when we've been studying masters, mystics, and metaphysicians. And what we've been doing is learning how is it that these people had mystical experiences? What was it that happened? We've studied Rumi. We've studied uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, we've studied Charles Fillmore. We've looked at a variety of people, uh, George Washington Carver. We've looked at the experiences they had and the way that they came to hear the divine moving them forward. And as a community, we've been in the question, how do we do that? How do we find our divine calling? How do we move forward in our divine calling? So for me, it was a very timely and probably not coincidental thing, Greg, that you happened to reach out when you did because you are coming in right at where we are um, at the perfect time to help us discern some of this. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are not familiar with Greg, um, if you once you hear him, you may recognize him. You will have seen him on ABC, on CNN, on NPR. You will have read him in the New York Times. You will have read him in Fast Company, in um, the Washington Post. He tends to get around, and we're just lucky he's here. Please join me in welcoming Greg Lavoie. Right. Well, good morning. Good morning. And thank you again for that. And I love that Janice Stanfield song. How perfect was that for today? Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I think I will jump right in. Um, when I was in college, I learned a critical lesson about human nature from a psychology class that I took. Because in the middle of the semester, the students in this class pulled a prank on the professor. And it was based on what he was teaching us at that point, which was called classical conditioning. Okay, So most people are familiar with that concept through the experiment using the famous Pavlov's dogs. Ring a bell? So <laughs> I keep you on your toes. They were taught to salivate at the sound of a ringing bell. And I, and I read recently that Pavlov's dogs is also the name of a perfume, <laughs> which I think has really interesting implications for the men folk. <laughs> so this is, this is what we did. We took advantage of our professor's habit of pacing back and forth in front of the lecture hall when he delivered his lectures. So what we devised 
is that whenever he paced over toward the windows, we very subtly pretended to be bored. Okay? So we slouched and we fidgeted and we doodled and stared vacuously into outer space, which actually by mid-semester it turned out some of us were pretty accomplished at. <laughs> and whenever he paced over toward the door, again, almost imperceptibly, we now pretended to be interested. Okay, so we sat up a little straighter, we started taking some notes, you know, fixed him with keen scholarly expressions. By the time that day's class was over, we had our psychology professor glued to the door. <laughs> Singularly the highlight of my college years. <laughs> and I half expected that when the bell rang at the end of class, he would, I don't know, begin to visibly salivate or something. But what I saw in that experiment, I think I had intuited most of my life I'd never seen demonstrated. And that is how incredibly easy it is to condition a human being to steer them from the outside, and by extension, of course, to be conditioned. And without a word being spoken, not a word, the entire experiment was conducted in pantomime. And I figured if it took us barely 50 minutes to condition our psychology professor with a new set of behavior, a new direction in life, if you will, I tried to imagine the effect on me of a lifetime's worth of that kind of conditioning by the time I was at that point 18. I mean, thousands upon thousands of messages that every single one of us got while we were growing up, um, and that effectively instructed us in the rules of the game. Right? What dreams are and are not bankable? Right? What is and isn't possible? How are you supposed to behave in public? What's the reigning definition of success in this culture? What are you personally capable of? You know what I'm saying, who pulls the strings in this game and who dances, okay? And I think the cumulative effect of a lifetime's worth of that kind of conditioning, whether it's negative or positive, false or true, effectively forms a kind of hypnosis. It's a kind of hypnosis. Um, and you know, every kind of human community passes along the message. Um, families and schools and um, gendering and Bibling and um, corporations, they all, they all pass along the message that conformity is rewarded and failure to conform is punished. It's, it's really, in a sense, it's a holdover from natural law because what natural law tells us is those who leave the herd to go their merry way have a tendency to get eaten you know, it's a little bit more complicated in the human arena, but the warning stands, the admonition stands, you know, and even though you know, culture itself would not exist without the glue of conformity, I just think that the individuals in it can tend to pay a pretty steep price for it. And one of the prices that we can pay is losing a working familiarity with who we really are. All right? Who we really are. So when I think of the notion of a calling, I think a calling cuts through a lot of this kind of conditioning because it 
emanates from the part of each one of us that knows what it knows. That knows what it knows. All right? That knows where other people leave off and where we start. And at a very early age, I've got a friend in California who told me about an interaction she had with her five-year-old daughter, Jenea, who apparently wanted to do something mommy didn't think advisable. So she said, um, Jenea, honey, I wouldn't do that if I were you. To which Jenea replied, with absolute innocence and certainty, but mommy, you're not me. You know, we knew where that line was at five years old. All right? Um, calls emanate from the part of each one of us that knows the feel of integrity in our lives and the feel of its absence. And I don't mean integrity really as a moral, ethical issue so much as a psychological issue. You know what I mean? As in being in integrity with yourself. All right? Calls come from the part of us that knows what kinds of decisions it's going to take to make our own lives literally come true. All right? And if not, honoring the, the developmental uh, urgings of our life. In other words, the fact that they change over the course of time. See, I, I think of the great vocational question is not what should I do with my life or what do I want to be when I grow up or um, certainly not what major should I declare. The, the great vocational question, in my opinion, is who am I? Who am I, I should say, as distinct from everybody else, the, the, the furry warmth of the herd, right? Um, who, who am I and who I am changes over the course of time. And so will the calls that come through the being that's being called, all right? So, um, and I'm, by the way, I'm defining a calling really broadly and even secularly. These are the, uh, the urgings, the promptings, uh, even the imperatives that come from deep inside our lives and that tell us what it's going to take to stay true to true north. All right? These are, that's how I'm defining it. And, um, and the fact is, our lives are continually calling us, continually sending signs and signals out to us and asking us to respond to them from beginning to the very, very end. They will try to pop through into consciousness to the very end. Um, and I think we intuitively know this, too, that the older we get, um, the more the sense of urgency increases. Doesn't that sound familiar to some of us? The sense of urgency about responding to these calls um, uh, heats up. And the less and less <coughs> postponement of our calls becomes a viable option. I saw a bumper sticker last year that said, warning, dates and calendar are closer than they appear. <laughs> like that. And the kind of authenticity that I'm talking about, um, you know, finding and following an authentic life, um, I don't even think is something you need to discover or figure out, or go on a great pilgrimage to find, necessarily, as much as something you need to remember. Remember. Okay? Religion. Both mean exactly the same thing. Religare, in Latin, means to rebond. Ligare, as in ligaments, to reconnect. All right? So in some sense, I think it's something we already know. 
or knew once, perhaps, and then forgot. Okay, that's my sense. When I was um, researching the, the Callings book, I remember running across a college biology textbook. And there was a passage in there that described what happens in a fertilized human egg as it grows and develops. And what they said is that um, as the cells grow, very, very early on in this process, these little indentations appear in the round cell ball that begin the process of distinguishing you know, one side of you from the other, the, the, head, the head from the hindquarters. Distinction that seems to be lost entirely on some people, <laughs> even <laughs> 40 years after they're fertilized. But what, what they said is that if, if at this point, <coughs> pardon me, in the game, you were to take a single cell from the head and mechanically move it down to the hindquarters, what would happen is that it would migrate right back up. Because, and this is what the book said, it knows what it's supposed to become. Imagine how that might strike you if you were researching a book about following your callings. At a cellular level, what they were suggesting was, we know what we're supposed to become. Okay? Now, that's a bit of a leap, but that's how I read it when I was researching the book. And anymore, when I hear people use this kind of language, I feel it in my cells, I feel it in my bones, I feel it in my gut, I feel it in the very fiber of my being. Anymore... I think they're talking literally without even being aware of it. So there was a guy that I included in the book. He's an artist who lives in Santa Cruz, California. His name is Howard Ikamoto. He described an interaction he had with his seven-year-old. She came to him one day and said, Daddy, what do you do at work? And he said, well, I work at the college, and my job is to teach people how to draw. And he said that she looked back at him incredulous and said, Daddy, you mean they forget? <laughs> Imagine how, in, how inscrutable that would seem to a seven-year-old child, that you could possibly forget how to draw. I mean, it's like forgetting how to dream or something. you know. But we do forget. We do. And as for how we go about remembering, um, let me share this. Um, I was teaching one of my callings weekend workshops years ago at a conference center in Massachusetts called Rowe, Rowe Conference Center. And when I got there, I found out that there was one other workshop being conducted at the conference center the same weekend as mine, and that one was on the subject of tracking, okay? And I remember being thrilled because it seemed that the two workshops happening at that conference center that weekend were about the exact same subject, the search for signs, right? In their case, indicating the presence of animals. In our case, the presence of callings, all right? So I got a chance to hang out with the people from that other workshop all weekend because we shared meals in the dining hall. And what jumped out at me about that bunch was how incredibly excited and articulate they were about the subject of poop. <laughs> Because it was one of the primary signs that they had to go by, tracks that they had to go by. And, uh, you know, uh, it's pretty much all they talked about, including <laughs> at the dinner table. Um, bit of an acquired taste. Um, and, um, 
and so, and, but I was inspired by this. And I shared it with the people in my workshop by way of saying, if we could cultivate that quality of enthusiasm just for the hunt, just for the act of tracking our lives and paying attention to them and being in dialogue with them, I think they're going to reveal things to us that they're not going to reveal if we're not interested. They're just not going to give up their secrets if we don't offer them some truly devoted curiosity. Right? And animal tracks are, you know, they're really like signs of pretty much any kind. They lead to something. They lead to something. In fact, if you ever get a chance to read a book called The Tracker by a guy named Tom Brown, this is ostensibly a book about animal tracking, but the bookstores usually put it in the spiritual section. It's fascinating to me. And here's maybe one reason why. There was a passage in there where he said, a track is the end of a string. At the far end, a being is moving. A mystery that leaves itself like a trail of breadcrumbs. And by the time your mind has eaten its way to the maker of the tracks, the mystery is inside you. Isn't that a beautiful description of what spiritual communities call discernment? Discernment. Right? I just think that's marvelous. Um, so when I was interviewing people for the Callings book and doing the research, one of the things that jumped out at me over and over again was how many, the vast majority, of the people that I interviewed told me that they had some kind of practice. And the whole point of that practice was self-reflection, was striking up a conversation with the maker of the tracks, if you will. All right? Uh, Self-dialoguing practice with the deep self. All right? And nothing extravagant. Journaling was really common. Meditation. Uh, for some people, therapy. Counseling is a self-reflective practice. Um, dream interpretation was really common. Regular short retreats. Artwork done in the service of self-discovery. Regular intimate conversation, several people said, was a, was a practice that allowed them to do that. And your participation in any kind of group whose members get together for the primary purpose of waking up. Women's groups, men's groups, um, mastermind groups, spiritual groups, um, personal boards of advisors, even 12-step groups. All right? So something like that. And one of the things that these practices can help you do, for one, is to avoid what the mythologist Joseph Campbell called the great sacrilege in terms of the soul's integrity. That's his language. The great sacrilege in terms of the soul's integrity is what he called inadvertence, meaning not paying attention, not having the receivers turned on. Okay? And also these practices can help you um, realize that there's not just one calling in there. You know, how many of you guys have ever had a sense, or may or at, at the moment have a sense, that you have more than one call competing for your attention? Does that sound familiar? Now, if nothing else, there are vocational calls, but there's also relationship calls, and spiritual calls, moral calls, service calls, the ones you got when you were 20, assuming you got a sense of calling at that age. Aren't they really different than the ones you're experiencing at 50? 
different than the ones you're going to experience at 75. You know, so there's sort of that developmental arc again. All right. So, um, and I've seen this happen a lot in my line of work. People who wait and wait and wait for the great big calling. You know, the, the like vocational burning bush. <laughs> Bony finger of God. You know, you, you're anointed. You're supposed to be a firefighter. Whatever. You know, and they miss all the smaller calls that are right at their feet and, in fact, are the fire drills for the bigger ones. That's my sense. All right? Because callings come in a really impressive variety of forms. Really impressive variety. And it pays to um, sort of post centuries at the various gates to get them when they're coming through. You know, who is it? Um, Wallace Stevens, poet by the name of Wallace Stevens, said, I don't ask for the full ringing of the bell. I don't ask for a clap of thunder. A scrawny cry will do. And I love that. To me, that's the beating heart of discernment. Calls come as um, intuitions. An intuition is technically a little calling. They come as passions and fascinations. They come as what makes you really angry and what makes you really joyous. They come as gifts. They definitely come as dreams. From what the research that I was able to do, all the religions of the world seem to agree that dreams are one of the primary channels through which the gods and the goddesses speak to the mortals. Okay? Um, you know who Tom Robbins, in, the, the novelist Tom Robbins? Um, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, another roadside attraction. He said, he said, dreams don't come true. They are true. When we talk about our dreams coming true, we're actually talking about our ambitions, which is a very different story. All right? Um, and here's an amazing corroboration for that idea. Out of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, they did a study. I saw it about 10 years ago in Time magazine. They studied pregnant women. And they found that of the women who had an intuition about the gender of their baby, they were correct 71% of the time, which I actually thought was pretty impressive all by itself. Of the women, though, who had a dream about the gender of their baby, they were correct 100% of the time. This is a Johns Hopkins study. I mean, what does that say? I mean, we've got access to really deep knowledge in there, and we're sleeping through it most of the time. You know, Calls come as, and this is the level at which I encourage people to look at the signs and signals in their lives, and will in the workshop tomorrow night. They come as things like song lyrics you can't get out of your head for weeks. Any of you ever heard of a novelist named Ann Tyler? She, she wrote The Accidental Tourist. That's the one most people know because it was made into a movie with William Hurt. But she's a brilliant observer of the dynamics between couples. And she says, I can always tell what my husband is really thinking by the tunes that he absentmindedly hums in the car. <laughs> so, gentlemen, take note. You know, because I'm in the mood for love is really different than tied to the whipping post. <laughs> So, thought I'd say that. Um, calls come as things like uh, a decision. 
that needs to be made in your life now, not backburnered another year or another decade. You know, this is some issue that's kind of been hanging over your head for a while now, waiting for resolution. There's a calling embedded in that, that process, you know. There's, there's several ways to respond to a call, by the way. Yes, no, and maybe. And my own experience, as well as observation, is that maybe can steal decades from your life. It really can. Um, calls come as things like, where is there um, friction in your life? Where's there friction? Because it's like in the natural world. Friction occurs where changes are trying to take place or are taking place. So where does head constantly argue with heart about something? Where does walk night not quite match talk? Right? Where does passion rub up against security? That being one of the primary dynamics, dramas, in people's relationship to their calls, if not their vitality. The struggle between passion and security. All right? Where do you fight with people? What are you fighting about or for? So friction. Another um, one is calls come through patterns that have established themselves in your life by this point in time. Okay, Meaning, um, lesson you endlessly have to keep learning. Kind of mistake you continually make. Kind of partner you continually attract. Getting fired again. You know, even the section of the bookstore you always walk into first when you walk into a bookstore. There's a little call embedded in that. All right? Um, Calls come as, definitely come as, body symptoms. I've got an entire chapter in the Callings book called The Language of the Body because the word symptom means a sign That's the etymology of the word symptom, a sign of what? The word pathology, for that matter, means the logic of pain, the logos, the meaning of pain. What's what's it mean? What's the logic? Even if it's psychologic, right? So there was a guy that I interviewed for that chapter. Actually, I've interviewed him for both my books. Uh, His name is Arnold Mindell. And he started something called Process-Oriented Psychology. And he's a brilliant body-mind guy, okay? And in the first interview, he said, symptoms are usually dreams trying to come true. I said, what? Symptoms are usually dreams trying to come true? And a week after he said that, I got it because I went to present at a writer's conference in Albuquerque. And after the presentation, I'm out in the lobby chatting with people, that sort of thing. Woman walks up to me out of the crowd, and I mean a complete stranger, walks up out of the crowd and says, um, one of those things that people won't generally say to you unless they're pretty sure they're never going to see you again, <laughs> I think. She just walked up to me and said, hey, you, you know why I'm so fat? which is not a question you're supposed to answer. (laughs) Um, And before I could even gather my wits, honestly, she answered it. She said, it's because I have so many stories inside of me I'm not writing down. That's her interpretation, not mine. You know, and uh, I'll tell you, there is no science or philosophy. 
I'm aware of that could dispute a self-diagnosis delivered with that kind of certainty. You know what I'm saying? The woman knew her body was trying to tell her something. She apparently knew exactly what it was. I need to be writing and I'm not writing. You know, she knew her symptom in the sense that it was a sign meant something, and she seemed to know just what it meant. Really, in a sense, it was like the mark of Jonah. It was the mark of Jonah. It was the evidence of her flight from a calling. And one, in this case, as she actually said it, it's pushing out from inside of me. Again, now, what would be fascinating is to follow up with that. As she starts to write her stories, does she lose weight? I mean, that would be an interesting little diagnostic in there. Um, so, uh, and by the way, all these signs, all these signals are extremely useful unless they cannot get through. And calls have a tough time getting through when they get nothing but busy signals. You know, when we're tying up the lines constantly with busyness as usual which is why this is such a high art. You know, and every spiritual tradition that I've ever run across at some point or another tells their adherents, sit down and shut up. <laughs> I mean, they say it nicer than that. But <laughs> that's the gist of it. You know, um, and that's really hard to do. But I, I just want to say, um, so I read a story in The New Yorker last year, written by a guy named Adam Gopnik. And uh, he's writing about his, let's see, three-year-old daughter who has an imaginary playmate named Charlie Ravioli. (laughs) And that's what you would Google if you want to read this story, which is a heck of a commentary on the culture we've created. It's called Charlie Ravioli. And so what he's saying, essentially, is there's nothing unusual about a three-year-old having an imaginary playmate except this one is always too busy to play with her. She's calling up Charlie Ravioli on her toy cell phone and always having to leave him messages. Leave him messages. And a month later, her father discovers she's now leaving messages with somebody named um, Lori. He says, honey, who's Lori? And in her three-year-old fashion, she explains to him that this is Charlie Ravioli's assistant. This is somebody he's apparently hired to return his phone calls for him. You know, and maybe I'm being overly sensitive or something, but when our three-year-old's imaginary playmates are too busy to play with them and start hiring agents for crying out loud to fend off the insistent phone call of the children who imagine them to begin with, I'm just thinking it's time to move out of New York. You know, or, or rearrange your priorities or something, something. Because the compulsion toward busyness is a pretty good definition of workaholism. All right? Experts just call it a, um, a process addiction instead of a substance addiction. Unless you consider adrenaline a substance, you know. And it's one of our very few, very few, socially sanctioned addictions Right? And one of the very few you can put on your resume, as you might know, you can't do that with most addictions. <laughs> you know, 2004 to the present, alcoholic. No. 
But you, you could put workaholic and people will be impressed and give you a job. So I just wanted to share that. Um, it's just that even if all of your works are good works, you know, even if all of your um, busyness is in the service of worthy and noble causes and callings, I just think that when the means to those ends is an addictive process, I think the end result is probably a loss of soul. That makes sense? A depletion of spirit. So I just wanted to share that in terms of being receptive. Following this um, dictum, to really being still and being willing to receive the calls. Because, you know, to get your marching orders uh, can be challenging. Because what if they're rather in conflict with how you live presently, what you're doing and who you're doing it with and all that. So it can be challenging. And I offer a gracious bow to what it is I'm actually encouraging people to do with the work I do you know, is to be still and know and listen for your marching orders and then do something about them, okay? Because they're often inconvenient. So here's how I want to um, finish up. Um, I, uh, one of the newspapers that I used to work for was the Cincinnati Inquirer. Um, and one of my favorite stories that I wrote in all the years that I was at the newspaper was a story about the circus coming to town. This was Ringling Brothers. They traveled around the country on a train, and I went down to the train station to meet them. And in a fit of journalistic zeal, and therefore short-sightedness, I let the animal trainer of Ringling Brothers convince me that riding bareback on an elephant at the head of the Barnum and Bailey Circus Parade through downtown Cincinnati would add color to my story. (laughs) So contrary to my jungle book fantasies about how I was going to get up on the back of an elephant, which was I was going to be airlifted on its trunk. That's too many movies. Anyway, the way I actually got up there was an aluminum ladder. Okay, And the only way to stay up on the elephant during the parade, I was instructed, was to hang on to the elephant's ears. Okay, so those of you who have ridden bareback on elephants, you probably know about this already, (laughs) but elephants' ears have a really unpleasant habit of flapping a lot. (laughs) You know, and we're talking elephant ear flapping. This is not like, you know, kitty cat twitching. Um... And so the only way to stay up on the elephant during the parade was to remain extremely flappable, okay? (laughs) Otherwise, I'd have been thrown, and it was 15 feet to the ground, and frankly, a concern that paled in in comparison to my concern about how stupid I looked up there. (laughs) Because for one thing, I was wearing my business clothes. I mean, he sprung the idea on me at the last minute. I'm wearing my business clothes... um, my pants are scrunched up above my knees with the black socks. It was just a fashion tragedy. That's <laughs> what it was. And, um, and you, have to, you have to picture, I'm the first thing anybody saw in that parade. And I know I did not capture the theme of that show. You know, Ringling Brothers, the greatest show on earth. Um, I'm pretty sure I captured another one of P.T. Barnum's famous themes. There's a sucker born every minute. (laughs) 
I got that one. But in looking back on that experience and on what I have learned since then about what's involved in following a call, that experience has a lot in common with following a calling. In that, I was caught by surprise and carried off by something much bigger than me. <laughs> it was thrilling and nerve-wracking simultaneously, and in that the elephant couldn't have cared less. And I'll tell you what I mean by that remark. Um, I've discovered a very unsettling truth. My soul doesn't seem to care what price I have to pay to follow my calls. This seems like a design flaw to me, <laughs> frankly, if I may be so bold. You know, it seems like it ought to care, but my happiness, my security, my uh, vanity, my popularity doesn't seem to matter to it. It's not interested in whether I live a comfortable life, it's not interested in whether I become rich and famous. It's not even interested in whether people like me or not. But what does seem to matter is hanging on to the elephant and being willing to go where the elephant goes. That does seem to matter. You know, the willingness to go for the ride, the big ride, you know, the one that ensures that someday, if your life happens to flash in front of your eyes, at the very least, it will hold your interest. <laughs> you know, that much at least. Or, or that somebody else's life doesn't flash in front of your eyes. Ooh, John Wayne, whatever. So I just want to say that in the spirit of helping to ensure that it does hold your interest, I just want to say that the workshop tomorrow evening from 6 to 9 is um, a very hands-on opportunity to explore what your own life is calling for from you, okay? This is not lecture, this is experiential, all right? Um, it's, it's a chance to look at, really the operative question we're after is, what wants to emerge in your life right now? What is knocking on the door for an entrance queue? All right, so I hope you'll come and bring writing materials if you do. And um, again, thank you, Ariana, so much for bringing me to your wonderful, beloved community. And thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Thank you.